session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. No calls today. I'm on Instagram Live. We can call in on the Wednesday shows. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Um, let's get into the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is The Five Languages of Apology by Gary Chapman and Jennifer Thomas. The Five Languages of Apology, How to Experience Healing in All Your Relationships. And um, this is by the same author, Gary Chapman, who wrote The Five Love Languages, which is a classic book on relationships. And I actually wanted to read this book for a while. Uh, It was hard to get my hands on this. I was very kindly gifted this book, so thank you for that gift um but it uh i got it in chinese one time i don't know if it was mandarin or cantonese but anyway finally have an english version i think apologies are such an important part of relationships and making them work and in resolving relationships we always need to be open and willing to acknowledge and apologize for what we've done and um so wanted to read this book and i've talked about that topic before but i'll share that with you Next Monday, it's The Five Languages of Apology by Gary Chapman and Jennifer Thomas. Uh, The book of the week for this week is a powerful uh, classic book, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. And I read his book, Giovanni's Room, one of his uh, novels a few months ago. You might have remembered me talking about that, but I had read excerpts from this book, The Fire Next Time. Um, I wanted to make sure I got to read it in its entirety and did that this week, and highly recommend you do the same, especially in the United States, to get an understanding of race and racism. And sadly, although this book was written, I think was released 1962 or 1963, um, it feels very uh, true as it is then, uh, now. So you kind of see that maybe not much has changed. Uh, unfortunately. But the the book consists of two, they're kind of like letters, but they're essays. The first one is actually to his nephew. It's called My Dungeon Shook, Letter to My Nephew on the 100th Anniversary of the Emancipation. And the second essay is, uh, or letter is Down at the Cross, Letter from a Region in My Mind. And the first uh, letter is to his nephew when I think he's about 14 or 15 years old. Um, And it begins, Dear James, I have begun this letter five times and torn it up five times. I keep seeing your face, which is also the face of your father and my brother. Uh, And it's a very touching um, letter to his nephew about what it means to be black in in America. And it's heartbreaking. Um, Also, as you might have noticed, it said, Dear James, because he was, uh, his nephew was named after him. He says, For here you were, big James named for me you were a big baby i was not here you were to be loved and although the book uh, both letters is powerful and intense and makes you feel lots of things and there's talk of anger and rage and lots of other emotions 
this theme of love also is one that comes up time and time again. And in some ways, to my understanding of it, was one of the central tenets or themes of the book or uh, contributions that he makes in this book, James Baldwin, is that love is going to be the answer to racism and race unity and unifying the United States. It can sound kind of cheesy to say love is the answer, but sometimes things are cliche because they are true. Um, and so he writes this letter to his nephew saying that, you know, you were born where you were born and faced the future that you faced because you were black and for no other reason. And the limits of your ambition were thus expected to be set forever. And so it's heartbreaking, but unfortunately expressing a reality that, as I said, was likely true uh, or as true now as 60 years ago. Um, so it's uh, it's heartbreaking to to see what he says but in- interestingly he doesn't say to to use that anger in a negative way he he can understand that he's angry but he also wants to show him that what you have to do is accept the white man as well uh, he says there's no reason for you to try to become like white people and there's no basis whatever for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you the really terrible thing old buddy is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love, for these innocent people have no other hope. They are, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. Um, And it's just really powerful to hear these words and his... um, not his, uh, in, in essence, advice to his nephew that he's trying to teach him that it's not going to be from the anger that you feel and to understand even what the whites are going through and that even they want to feel that they are better than him because that gives them something. Um, so he says, in this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. You would be frightened because it is out of the order of nature. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. While the black man has functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, as an immovable pillar, and as he moves out of his place, heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations. You don't be afraid. I said that it was intended that you should perish in the ghetto, perish by never being allowed to go behind the white man's definitions, by never being allowed to spell your proper name. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you feel that, of course, he recognizes that for things to change, we, we have to understand how hard it is for everyone involved. Change is always difficult. It always is resisted so we can want things to be better we can want them to change but it's interesting he's putting his nephew in the shoes of the white man what they are experiencing that although he wants better see it from their perspective as well and then he 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 ends it and if the word integration so integration when you uh, remember the context in the 60s of integrating schools there was segregation and this was a big word and it's in italics And if the word integration means anything, this is what it means. That we, with love, 
shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. For this is your home, my friend. Do not be driven from it. Great men have done great things here and will again, and we can make America what America must become. And that's actually interesting when you hear that, make America, already those two words in the American political life bring up a lot of things when you think of make America great again. But it says we, we can make America what America must become. Um, and of course, in a lot of ways, America still hadn't or hasn't lived up to its ideals of all men being created equal or all people being created equal. Um, and so here he's telling his son, nephew that he, he should know what to expect and be prepared for this, this life that is ahead of him and what it must mean. And so again, it's not about hatred and anger being the answer. Love is going to be the answer. And so if you hear James Baldwin speak, and I recommend the book, The Fire Next Time, that I read this week, but also you can go on, on YouTube, you can watch the documentary I Am Not Your Negro, which I actually I watched um, last night. And he's very powerful in how he speaks. Great speaker, an incredible writer. I remember I mentioned when I read Giovanni's Room, um, it's just a way that his, his uh, prose would punch, like a punch in the stomach, hit you really deep, kind of out of nowhere. You'd be reading a line and, and feel it very deeply. So he's a very uh, intense writer, a passionate writer, and a passionate individual when you see him speak. I'm very inspired by how he would share his thoughts so eloquently with so much power and passion. Um, but in this book, you see that it's not about anger. Although he is hurt, love is a very key component of it. And so that's the, the first letter. The second one is um, down at the cross, letter from a region in my mind. And here he shares, and it's interesting because his letter to his nephew is when he was about 14, his nephew. Uh, he shares a story of when he was about 14, that's when he had a prolonged religious crisis and then became very involved in the church and was um, giving sermons essentially as a young boy and was getting a lot of attention. And he shares his experience with the church. And then he also shares his encounter with the nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad and how he had a meeting with him um, and, and shares his thoughts about that encounter. And you see his experience of seeing that in some ways, Many people then, you see it less now, but the solution was seen, seen to be that we can create a white America and a black America. Again, back to this uh, segregation type of a mindset. And, and even when we look at uh, people thinking that God was black or the nation of Islam being for blacks, it was a, even, it's not only just a different, two different countries, it was two different gods. We were so separated. And, and you can see that he does not see that. James Baldwin does not see that as the solution. That if we are to again integrate, if we are to unite, uh, we have to come together. There is no real way of making it work otherwise if we try to be apart. And so, again, it's a very powerful, and the majority of the book is this second essay where you see first his experience with the church, his experience encountering uh, or, or learning and, and, and meeting Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam um, and seeing his experience and what he thinks America needs to do. And again, he brings up the experience of the white man and how, although it might seem that they are the ones with the advantage or it's good for them, but it's not really true in some ways. Of course, they have the power. That theme comes a lot in this uh, essay. 
but a powerful line for me was whoever debases others is debasing himself. Whoever debases others is debasing himself. When you treat someone or some group as less than, you are debasing yourself in a way. You are putting yourself down. And I think that is so true. When we treat anyone with hatred or we put them down in some way or try to make ourselves better than them, we are always putting ourselves down too. You can't disrespect someone without in that way disrespecting you, that you are even going to that place, sharing um, sharing that. And so again, he comes back to love. He says, love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. I use the word love here, not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace. So it's that we, when we love truly, we have to take off these masks And in that way, color can be seen as this mask that has been created. And in the American life, in American history, we see that it has often been created to say that some group is better than another group, that some group is superior. And so we see that in the United States. And still, we have to recognize that this is not going to be the solution. And we can understand the anger. Of course, when we try to understand someone else's experience, we know we can't fully understand it. We try to uh, understand what that experience might be like. And reading a book like this, you do get a more like a first um, uh, hand account of that. Um, and so, what we uh, see in this book is he shares that pain. And I think it's so meaningful that the solution will be not just in sharing that pain, but in also sharing love. But it can only happen when both sides come together. And so, he does even bring up hope in the book that he is optimistic. He even says it is impossible what he is hoping for, that things get better, but that the history of blacks in America has been about overcoming and and facing the apostles. So he um, he says, I know that what I'm asking is impossible, but in our time, as in every time, the impossible is the least that one can demand. And one is, after all, emboldened by the spectacle of human history in general and American Negro history in particular for it testifies to nothing less than the perpetual achievement of the impossible. So as I read this book again from about 60 years ago, um, I was at times heartbroken and and you get sad and you feel the pain expressed in such a meaningful way, such an intense way. But also I was left with some hope, although, um, you know, hesitantly hopeful, you can say, because of what we see happening in and right now, with race and racism being even more part of the common discussion, I think that is a good thing. But solutions are going to be hard to come by and difficult to create and develop. And I think, of course, it's going to involve everyone coming together to make things better, to come to some solution. But I think reading a book like this, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, and of course, many others as well, I hope you will will try to inform yourself and educate yourself as I'm trying to do and continuing to do about race and racism in America because we have to understand the problem and also hear from people who are experts or who have their opinions on what the solutions might be in order to work towards them. We know that overcoming racism in the United States is not going to be something easy, of course. It has been a challenge and continues to challenge the country. But I am hesitantly hopeful and I think that if we 
continue to educate ourselves. Uh, we, we have more hope. And I think that at the end, love will be the answer. That cliche type of a statement, love is the answer, I think is very true because that's the only way we will overcome this through hate. We will not get to a better place. All right, that brings us to our first commercial break. Again, that was The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So um, in the first segment, talked about the book, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. And as I was saying, one of the um, the themes in the book that I think was throughout the, bo- the, the book that was important for me was love being what we're going to need to get to a better place. And so we see what's happening right now in the United States, and we see a lot of anger, unfortunately, uh, or understandably, too, from all sides. It's just a lot of anger. Uh, also, I'd, I want to recommend a documentary, The Social Dilemma, that was on Netflix, uh, looking at social media and how um, it's funny. I know it's ironic. I'm on Instagram Live as I'm talking about social media and how it can be harmful, but social media and how it can play a negative part in our lives, how the people who are creating these companies uh, or the people that are creating the software and things are trying to get us addicted essentially because um, as the saying goes when you don't have to pay for a product you are the product so when you're on Instagram you don't have to pay to be on Instagram that's because you are the product for Instagram or Facebook or Twitter whatever it might be they're selling your data your eyeballs whatever you want to call it to companies and you know, it's a whole process. So they want you on there. Unfortunately, uh, what we see is that if they want to make the most money, they can't really think about what's best for us or they don't uh, have to think about what's best for us. And often what ends up happening is something that isn't good for us. So um, I highly recommend that documentary and related to that. So, of course, there's this negative impact it can have on our lives that you can get hooked on it. You realize you're doing Things like doom scrolling, where you're not really on there for any particular reason. You're just scrolling through. You might be looking at things for the 10th time just to waste time. And for me, what's always an important thing to look at is what am I avoiding when I'm on social media, when I'm on my phone? Because very often we know we're not on our phone to do something um, productive or something we need to do. But actually, we are just trying to distract ourselves. What are we distracting ourselves from and even you might have experienced this too I, I see with a lot of my clients and people in general you are going to bed and you want to just keep looking at your phone or looking at something because you know the second you put it away and you're laying in bed you're going to be alone with your thoughts and your feelings and that could be very scary for most people we don't we're avoiding something and of course we can understand that avoidance but we know that just because you avoid something, it doesn't go away. And what you resist persists. And therapy, a big part of it is actually getting people to face their feelings, which isn't always pleasant. And this is why, one of the reasons why when you start therapy, you might feel worse before you feel better. We're bringing up feelings, which that can be tough. And we're also getting you to face things that you're feeling now that you might have been avoiding. So you could be sad about something or unhappy, anxious, and you're trying to avoid it, 
And then when you're in therapy, it can be an opportunity to just sit with your feelings and actually connect to them, which can be a challenging experience. It's not easy. So really, we mean it when we say going to therapy can be hard, but lots of things that are worth it, they're hard, but it can be a challenging experience that you have to go through. So um, it's something important to look at. So I recommend that documentary, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. And another thing that came up along with this addictive uh, side of things is the impact it has on polarizing what we are um, thinking and feeling and believing. So the way these, these systems work is they try to show you more things they think you like. So what that does is if they already see that you believe certain things or think certain ways, they're going to send you more articles that confirm that and less of the opposite and vice versa. So people are constantly being exposed to ideas that are consistent with what they already think and believe. And it's leading to this or contributing to this polarization. On top of that, something that was addressed in the uh, documentary is that the truth of these articles is not necessarily important. They do, now it's becoming more common, some fact checking, but it's still on a very low scale, that there's a lot of misinformation that can be spread, making the polarization even stronger because you're getting exposed to things that confirm what you think and make the other side look like crazy, evil, demonic people, that how can anyone think this way? And so both sides uh, feel that. And so I've noticed, so I have some friends that are left-leaning and some that are right-leaning. And so if I go on my Facebook and you can see people talk about the same issue, saying the other side is crazy and stupid about the same thing. And that's, that's essentially where we have gotten, is that people are just saying, the other side must be crazy. There's no other way to explain it, even though we're talking about at times uh, a big portion of the population or half the population, people will say they're crazy, they're immoral. How can you think this way? How can you believe that? Well, the reason why people can believe that is because we're being exposed to different information. You're seeing different things. So if I tell you three bad things about someone and someone else tells you three good things about someone, of course, it's going to make a difference. Who do you hear that from? Or if one person only heard from one of us, they're going to have a very different opinion about whoever that person is. And I think this is really unfortunate. And, you know, in this book, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, it is a bit of a leap, but in that connection that only through love are we going to heal racism in the United States. And in general, any type of polarization that we see, any type of um, discord that we see Love is going to be the answer and the solution. And one of the aspects of love is trying to understand and have empathy for the other person. But if you already think you know that they're stupid and crazy and immoral to think what they think, well, then there isn't even uh, a desire or the feeling of a need for a conversation. And this is really unfortunate. And this is something we're seeing in the United States. And I think it can be hyperbolic to some degree, but not necessarily so based on what you have maybe seen happening in the United States lately. But even one of the individuals in the documentary, and most of them were people who had uh, worked in tech companies, big tech companies, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, sharing some of their thoughts and a lot of times their fears. But one of them, they asked him, What's, what is the worst case scenario? What are you worried about? And he said in the short term, I think he said like the next 20 years, civil war. 
And civil war here in the United States is something we think about in the history books uh, 160-some-odd years ago, but not something we think could happen again. And I don't think if, if it does happen, something like that, it's going to be where there's going to be a you know a secession and a whole new country that will attack the you know America, however you want to put it, but that actually um, there could be such internal conflict between different groups. And we've seen, unfortunately, the violence that has unfolded in places like Kenosha and the protests and things that have happened in other countries, other parts of the, the country, um, and violence that has happened between the opposite sides who think that they are so right and the other side is so wrong. And, and what's unfortunate is that people, when you look at both sides, like I said, if I go on my social media, I can see people from both sides. They both think the other side is trying to destroy America, is trying to, um, you know, ruin America, ruin American values, hurt people, kill people, that the world, you know, there's going to be uh, an apocalypse or dystopia if the other side wins. And that makes it very scary because you think you're not just fighting for what you believe or what you think is right. You feel like you're saving America. And so you can almost be a martyr or a murderer and you're okay because you are trying to do something good to promote something good. And so we have this, this becoming more entrenched and it's becoming like religion in the sense that people think they are so right. They think they are so right that they have the right to do anything. Because if you thought someone was literally about to walk into a room and kill a child, you might think I can do anything to that person, even kill that person to stop them from killing that child. And people have gotten to that point with what is going on right now in the political landscape of the United States that both sides think the other side is trying to ruin everything, is going to ruin the world. And I'm not going to get into to which side should is better or worse, but what I will say is that we need to be able to talk. We need to be able to connect and to communicate. And what that means is we have to accept, and people don't want to accept this, that maybe I'm not right, or at least maybe I'm not completely right, or maybe I don't know everything that I think I know. I think I know what's the best economic policy, what's the best social policy, what's the best gun policy, but these things and these issues tend to be a lot more gray than black and white. And having some absolute truth and a monopoly on the truth is rarely the reality. Rarely is it the truth that you know exactly how to, let's say, solve racism in the United States or deal with the police issue that we have or the issues you might have related to police. And people become very black and white. Either you hate the police or you love the police and no matter what they do. And it shouldn't be that way. There should be much more nuance in it. And unfortunately, this doesn't have to be related to what's going on politically, but you may be heard in Los Angeles area, there was uh, an ambushing, ambushing, essentially, two police officers were uh, attacked, someone just pulled up and shot them. There's some video of it, of course, it's hard to watch, but it is the reality of what we're dealing with. It seems that the two police officers, as of I heard last, were still struggling and fighting for life, but still alive. Um, but, and it's, you know, right now in this political climate, everyone thinks it's related to what's going on. It could be, who knows why that individual did it. And it doesn't mean it defines one side of the argument, but that's what people are doing. They say, see people who want police reform. This is 
what they want. They want people to just walk up to police officers and kill them. And I don't think that's the truth. I'm someone who definitely thinks we need to look at how the policing uh, policing works in the United States and the ways that it doesn't work, and also racism that's within the system of our criminal justice system and every step of the way. We definitely need to do that. But I would never be okay with um, hurting or killing someone at all. That, of course, almost goes without saying, but I will say it, that that is never going to be, to me, part of the solution that we should be looking for right now and what's going on. And we need to be able to have nuanced discussion where you can say, I agree with this part of this, but not all of it. But right now we've become so polarized that you can't even um, have that type of nuanced discussion because the second you're not 100% on our side, whatever that is, you're on the other side. So you can't say, you know, I think uh, we need police reform, but I really think police officers have a challenging job and we have to be aware of that too. It's like, no, you have to be either totally against them or totally for them. And these type of polarized discussions never get anywhere because now we're creating a tribal war. Who is going to win rather than coming to some truth or some reality and some understanding? And this is really unfortunate, but that is essentially where we see ourselves right now. And so, of course, you can point to other people and say, as I'm kind of in a way you might think doing, look at how people are thinking and how stupid they are to be so blind to the whole picture. But you have to do the difficult thing, which is to look in the mirror and say, well, how might I be doing this? How might I be thinking I'm so right about things and the other side is so stupid? How might I not realize that some of these issues that I think are so black and white are much more nuanced, have much more uh, gray area to them, that I'd like to think I'm so sure because that feels good, it feels better, but actually I'm not so sure. I have to be open to that, that I don't know that I, what I think I know or that I know it as an absolute truth. And unfortunately, what we also are seeing um, is that because people are saying, so this is what it is and you're stupid to think the other way, well, unfortunately, now this creates such a difficult process to acknowledge anything else. Because if I've put myself out there saying, you're so stupid to believe X, and now I see there might be something to that, it becomes very difficult for me to then say, oh, you know what, maybe part of that makes sense. And I think this is unfortunate. People identify so strongly as I am a pro this, anti this kind of thing. Um, and when it becomes part of our identity, then when it gets challenged, it almost feels like we are dying, not just we're thinking of a new idea. It's almost like our sense of self is being attacked. And so I wish that we can have passionate debates. People, of course, can care about the issues, but that we didn't think we had to pretend we are so 100% sure about something to talk about it. You can share what your thoughts are, what you want, what your hopes are. I want, for example, for everyone to have health care in the United States. That's something that's important to me. I don't know if I know the exact path towards that, but I think it's very important for everyone to have health care because I don't want anyone to die from not having a medication or having treatment that we actually do have the technology or the medication to help them. So I think let's, how can we figure that out? I don't know. I can't say I know this perfect plan, but that's something I believe in. That's a value that I have. And recognize and understand your own values, but don't think that you have the truth because no one does. And the only way we're going to grow as individuals and as a, a country and as a world is if we're willing to learn from 
each other, to talk, to try to understand better, because also at the end, ultimately, we have to come together to create big changes. If you try to drag half the country uh, across the finish line with you to get to somewhere, you're probably not going to get very far, and they're going to pull you back, and we're not going to make a lot of progress, unfortunately. Let's go to another commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fahir Delakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So during the commercial break, um, following the conversation I had in the last segment, someone on the Instagram Live asked, uh, this is from Ryan S888, why do people want to be in power and have a hard time letting go of power? And of course, this is a complex type of a question where we're looking at power and, and what does it mean and why would it mean so much? And I started talking about it during the commercial break to those tuning in on Instagram Live, but I'll essentially start from the beginning of what I was saying. So we can understand that feeling or having power feels good. Now, even power, how we can define it is having the ability to, to have control over something, whether it's resources, whether it's how things happen and what's going on, but having some ability to, to have a control over something. And so when we have power, it, it takes away that feeling of anxiety, of uncertainty, when we know where we feel like we know that we will be able to have control over things. If I know I have control over the resources, I never have to worry about me or my family having any issues related to getting to what we want or what we need. And so we can understand this desire for power. And really, all human beings have this desire in us. And I say that not to mean we're all bad people, but actually that we all have these tendencies in us and it's good to understand no one is purely good we have different aspects within us some are dark we can call it your shadow we can call it many things but we're not just these purely good things i don't think human beings are inherently bad uh, but i don't think we're just purely good and have nothing bad within us or that in the wrong context we wouldn't do something bad and that's what we have to always be aware of how we're living our life and also as a society how we live our life or when we go to war if you look at almost any war throughout history of course there's the horrible killings that's happening is basically the rule of war is killing and trying to see not who is right as in correct but see who is left as in remaining um, but also on top of just the killing you will see things like rape horrible things that happen within uh, when you have soldiers in enemy territory and they're killing you know, horrible things. I'd recommend the book, um, The Lucifer Effect by Philip Zimbardo on the, on this topic. That's where I remember getting exposed to this in very, uh, you know, detailed form that you see things like, it's hard to even say, but forcing rape between family members and, and, and making them do that in front of other family members, just horrific things. And of course we can think how bad are those soldiers that did these things, those people that did these things. But really, we should think of it more as the context that we're creating. When you create a context where you say, those people, you need to go kill them. They're evil. They're bad. They're scum. They're animals. The things we always do during war dehumanize the other side. They are somehow less than human or they have evil intentions. 
we somehow dehumanize them to the point where killing them is good. It makes sense to kill them. Well, then, of course, when we create that and then all the, the tension and the anger and the destruction and the violence that it's creating both externally and within the people that have to be agents of that war, then unfortunately it's not surprising to see the result is that people are um, raping and hurting and killing and mutilating outside of the war. Again, this wasn't necessarily part of winning the war, but you always see this kind of, if you want to call it collateral damage, but collateral really inhumane damage that happens in any war because we're bringing out the worst in people. We're creating context that brings out the worst in us. And so we have to accept as human beings, we might want to think we are just good and noble, and we definitely have that side. But if we're not careful and if we're not aware, we can go into bad places. This is just the nature of being human. It reminds me of that old proverb. I don't know um, which uh, culture it's from, where it's like a father, uh, a grandfather and a grandson. And the grandfather's telling the grandson, you know, within us, there's two wolves and they're kind of fighting a war. There's the wolf that's good and it's kind, love, generosity, empathy, uh, you know, all the good qualities. And there's also a negative wolf that's about uh, destruction and violence and anger and hurting other people. And the grandson asks, well, which wolf wins? And the grandfather replies, whichever one you feed. And so whichever wolf within us or whichever aspects within ourselves we keep feeding become stronger and become a bigger part of our character and what we express. And that, of course, is on an individual level and is our responsibility, but it's also in a societal level as well, that society creates certain contexts that will bring out different aspects of the citizens. And that's why it's so important how we create that context. When you create slavery in a culture, it's going to trickle down in other ways as well that people are treated. Um, when you have torture, even part of your society, even if it's for you think good reasons, it's going to affect how people uh, treat others as well. So going back to the question that was asked, why do people want to be in power? We can understand the desire for power because it gives us a sense of control. It gives us a sense of safety that things will be okay. And of course, it feeds into a feeling of being superior, which we can also have which is coming from our fear of being inferior. We all can have this feeling or fear of being less than, of not being good enough or being good. And so we see this throughout society, even with like racism, for example, very often the poor whites in America have been told that they've been sold this lie of race and the importance of race and the superiority of being white as a way of disunifying the poor whites and the poor blacks to say that, no, see, you don't want to be like them. They're your enemy and you're better than them. You might be poor, but at least you're white. And we sold that lie or has been sold to them in order to maintain this disunity, to maintain the ability for uh, the classism to exist in the United States. And this is something we've seen. It happens and it happens again, and you're still seeing it happening here in the United States. So we do have this desire to be feel superior. Again, something you have to, we have to be aware of, putting ourselves above. Um, why do we put people down? Why do we like to um, gossip about people in a negative way? Oh, did you hear what she did? Or did you hear what he did? 
Of course, sometimes it's to exchange information, but very often it's to try to make ourselves feel better. And you should always ask yourself, if I'm trying to, if I have to push someone down to make myself feel more up, what is that saying about me and what I'm going through right now? If I have to make someone feel less than to make me feel enough, what is that saying about me? And this, of course, ties into this idea of uh, a race and racism in the United States. The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, in a way, alludes to some of these dynamics in the book as well. So why do I have to put someone else down unless I'm feeling down myself or I'm afraid I'm low? And they've done different types of research on this one that I don't remember the details, but it was something along the lines of people were given some kind of negative feedback, told either they took some math tests and didn't do good or something was done. And then they had to grade um, an anonymous student's essay. And the ones that got negative feedback were much more likely to negatively rate and say negative things about those essays of, of the anonymous people. So when they were themselves put down, they wanted to put someone else down to make themselves feel good again. Um, so having power, we can understand. It's, it can make sense to want it. But there is, you know, that classic line, um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That when you have too much power, it's not a good thing. It's like these, uh, a drug that if you take, it does corrupt you as good as you think you are. And this is why there was a lot of wisdom in the um, framework of, let's say, the U.S. Constitution, This the balance of powers, the checks and balances, that no one group, one uh, organization, one individual has too much power. Even if you are president, you still have limited powers. You are not some tyrant who can decide to do whatever you want without any checks and balances. And there was something very wise about that because when we give people absolute power, no matter how good you think you are, it corrupts you. And you see this throughout history and even today when people get some power, even if it's celebrity or notoriety, how it can very often corrupt them. And we can say, does that mean they were bad to begin with? Does it mean it's something that's coming out or it's inevitable? I think we all have it within us. We all can be corrupted by it and you have to keep yourself in a way in check meaning that that humility genuine humility is important not the humility where you say oh i'm nothing everyone else did it it wasn't me but really internally you feel like it was all about you and you still want that attention but the genuine humility where you recognize i might be doing something or excelling in some way or been brought to be in a position of power but it doesn't make me any better and definitely, of course, not any worse either, but definitely doesn't make me any better or more valuable than any other human being. Here are my attributes. Here's my position if I've been elected, let's say, to some, some office, but it doesn't make me better than anyone else. And I've mentioned this before, but I've told my brother Parham that sometimes I wish I could vote for president for someone who doesn't want to be president in the sense that when people want to be in power, that already at times can show us that they might be doing it for the wrong reasons. I'm not saying everyone does it for the wrong reasons. Some people do want to help and genuinely make things better. I do believe that. But it can also attract people that want power to have it for themselves, to feel good about it, to feel good about themselves, to put themselves above others. Now, because I just have a few minutes going to that second part, why do people have a hard time letting go of power? But we can understand that, that when you've been given some type of advantage, when you have been given some position, it, it's scary to lose that because also when you've been given power and you're losing it, 
first of all, any change people tend to resist, even if it's good, actually, but especially if it might make things slightly harder for you, at least in the short term, we tend to resist change. So we can understand people don't want to lose that power. Also, there can be this fear of how far do I go? And if you've been the one that's been in power, and especially if you've been mistreating those that have been below you in whatever way that is, the ones that uh, did not have the power, you probably are afraid of what are they going to do if I let go of that power. And so we see tyrants, always dictators, become more and more paranoid over time. And it's probably a lot of things going on, including the projection of their own um, violence and hate and the ways they're being manipulative and hurting other people that they put onto others. But they also know they've been treating other people so poorly, so horribly that once they have the power over them, if they can in some way unite and overpower them, they're going to rip that person to shreds. They're going to tear them apart because they know how they've been treating others. So it's also scary to let go of power when you think or because you know and or think you know that whoever then gets the power, if you've had power over them, is now going to treat you in that same way. And unfortunately, this is how we tend to view things, especially in America. It's very much about who can overpower whom. Well, we can overpower that country, so they have to do what we want. We can overpower these people, and I think it's a very bad uh, diplomatic strategy. I understand it in a way when we're talking about power again, but you can't try to kill all your enemies and create peace. You have to create peace through diplomacy through connection through understanding you'll never achieve peace by killing everyone you think doesn't like you because then you just start creating other people that don't like you as well it never ends that way in peace and it comes back to uh, james baldwin saying in this book love in that way is going to be the answer and so hopefully the people who have been hurt if they can be so understanding to show that they will be loving to the people who are in power, it can make it easier. But of course, the people who have been hurt are understandably very angry because they are hurt by what's happened. And they it's not always going to be so easy for them to forgive and go to love. It's a complicated, a complicated type of a thing. So uh, thank you for that question about power. It's a complicated issue. I would actually want to keep going on about it, but we have to end the show for tonight. But thank you uh, to you, Ryan S., and also everyone who's been tuning in. Um, we have to end the show for tonight. Thank you to Amir here in the studio as always. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lockwee. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>